to be going back to the Psalms. I thought when Dave was starting there, he was going to say it's been three years that we've been in the Psalms. It hasn't been that long. It just only feels like it. Of course, I know just based on some of the comments and things I've heard, some of you are currently living in fear of Psalm 119. So we'll just let you continue to sweat over that when we're not there yet. So it'll be a little while before we get there. Now, we are in Psalm 68. So we've been going psalm by psalm um, through the entire book of the Psalms, uh, wanting to uh, pay attention to uh, what each of the psalms has to say. And particularly, we're focusing on what I would call the biblical theology of the Psalms and how that the Psalms work together to present an overall message as a, as a complete collection and how they um, connect with um, the story of Scripture, the other um, parts of Scripture, and particularly the Messianic hope in the Psalms. So that's been our focus as we've been going through the Psalms. And now we have come to Psalm number 68. So we want to start with our summary um, for Psalm 68. Psalm 68 looks forward to the restoration of Israel as deliverance from death when the Messiah conquers all the nations of the world and establishes his kingdom from Zion. So I'll go over that again. Psalm 68 looks forward to the restoration of Israel as deliverance from death when the Messiah conquers all the nations of the world and establishes his kingdom from Zion. Um, okay, so a simple outline. We always, always try to present a simple outline, and outlining this psalm is actually very challenging, but um, trying to keep it in the most simple form, about half. So verses 1 to 16, we have the triumphant march of the warrior king. Verses 17 to 35, we have the blessedness of his reign from Zion. So I'll go over that again. Verses 1 to 16, the triumphant march of the warrior king. Verses 17 to 35, the blessedness of his reign from Zion. Okay, so we'll go to our observations. Psalm 68 was written by David. As you can see, the superscription ascribes it to him, to the chief musician, a psalm or song of David. It is directed there to the chief musician or to the choir master. Um, it is called a psalm and a song, uh, which is just like um, this um, subgroup, uh, Psalms 65 to 68. All of, all of them have this in their headings, and they are all linked together um, by various terms and references and, and thematically. Um, so it has that uh, as well as those other psalms in this David psalm group. There are three selahs in the text. So you have one at the end of verse 7, one at the end of verse 19, and one at the end of verse 32. And so other than that, there's no other uh, musical direction um, given for the psalm. There's no occasion that is given in the superscription or in the text of the psalm. Um, there are a number of different ideas about um, what an occasion might have been, and, and some of them have... Uh, more merit than others, but overall, we really we don't know that there was a specific occasion um, for the writing of the psalm. Um, to categorize this psalm, Psalm 68 is a kingly or a royal psalm, and so it has the mention of the king in it, um, and it is a psalm or a, a hymn of praise about the coming anointed son king to Zion. So this is a messianic psalm, and we. 
uh, know that assuredly because um, Paul refers to this psalm in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8 uh, and with a direct application to Christ. Um, so uh, we, there's no question about it being a messianic psalm. Um, also, I would say that this psalm is prophetic predictive. Um, so it's a psalm that is looking forward to the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom. Uh, it has a lot of other elements in it, which is something that sort of makes it hard to, to categorize um, further. But there's elements of thanksgiving and of praise. There's creation elements in it. There's uh, military imagery or some what we could even really call as a um, subcategory of war psalms. Psalm 68 has connections, obviously, with this subgroup that it's in, beginning with Psalm 65 to 68. Uh, and this is a subgroup of psalms in this larger David group of psalms in book two of the psalms. So it is linked with those psalms, obviously, by the use of the term song. They are all called uh, a psalm and a song in the heading, uh, which is a word that's not used that frequently in the heading of the psalms. Um, they're linked thematically. Um, one of the strong thematic elements would be uh, that of universal dominion. Um, and also we see Psalm 68 uh, coming at the latter end of this David Psalm group. And it comes as an answer to the earlier laments. So the earlier laments of this David group, which started in Psalm 51, the earlier laments described exile and abandonment, um, the oppression uh, by enemies, um, and progressing to the rising of the king, the conquering of the enemies, and the gathering of the people. So Psalm 68 provides a good answer um, to those earlier laments. Um, we can see some, some particular um, connections. So Psalm 65:7. there we have the quieting of the nation's Psalm 66 and verse 7, uh, God is spoken of as watching or ruling of the nations. Psalm 67, 4, we see justice on the earth. And so Psalm 68, verses 16 and 24, give us the enthronement of the Messiah. In, in many ways, it's the, um, it's the depiction of um, the installing of his king on his holy hill of Zion that we read all the way back in Psalm number 2. This psalm is also strongly connected to the latter Korahite psalms. So we talked about the group of Korahite psalms that began book two and how that when you look at that group as a group, you can notice a certain trajectory. So you begin with laments and you have themes of exile and abandonment and desolation and enemies and fear of death. And you, you progress from that to the latter part of that Korahite group where you have the coming of the king, uh, like in Psalm 45, you have the coming of the king, you have the defeat of the enemies, you have um, the entrance um, of the king in, in Zion and, and so on. So the latter part of the Korahite psalm group um, is mirrored in the latter part of this David group. So we've talked about that, how the Korahite group and the David group, if you put them together, you're going to see the same trajectory in both of the groups. So it, it's no surprise at all um, that when we get to Psalm like Psalm 68, we see strong reflections and parallels with what we saw getting toward the end of the Korahite Psalms earlier in this book. So particularly Psalms 45 to 48 um, are strongly connected with Psalm 68 here. So like in Psalm 45 verses 5 to 6, you see the nations beneath his feet, um, which is also uh, and uh, what, what comes out here in Psalm 68. In Psalm 46, 10 and 47 verses 2 and 8, um, you see um, the Messiah exalted and reigning over the nations of the earth. And that's what you also see here in Psalm 68. In Psalm 48, verses 2, 5, and 6, you have the rain from Zion, and that's also what we see here in Psalm 68. So there's obviously very strong connections um, there, and, and that's just as we should expect. Um, there is, in, in Psalm 68, there's a blending of the past and the future. And that's one of the things that makes Psalm 68 somewhat difficult to deal with and to categorize and such, because there seems to be this interweaving of 
past and future. And it, it's kind of hard sometimes to tell um, what's, what's what and what's apart. But having said that, those historic connections um, come out as connections with Exodus chapter 15. So Exodus chapter 15, you remember that is the song of Moses after the crossing of the Red Sea. Um, so there are a lot of connections with that. Um, there's connections with Numbers, Numbers chapter 10 and verse 35. That is when Moses was um, making his pronouncement um, for the ark to move forward and all the people of Israel are to go forward after the ark and the ark's going to go forward and God's going to scatter his enemies. And so we have connections there. Uh, we also have strong connections with Judges chapter 5. Uh, Judges chapter 5, which gives us the song of Deborah um, after the um, victory that was won there um, through the leadership of Barak. So there are, um, there are strong connections with some of those historical books. We could also, being um, prophetic predictive, there's, there are also um, connections with some of the prophets, and such as Isaiah and, and um, Zechariah and so on. All right, so poetic features for Psalm 68 um, is challenging, um, not because there aren't any, but because there are so many. Um, there is, it's, Psalm 68 it has 35 verses, which makes it somewhat challenging. You just have so much material to deal with. But every one of those, those verses is just loaded. Um, so there's all kinds of imagery within this psalm. So, I'm, so as we go through here, I'm, I'm not going to be able to get um, you know, down into, into all the fine details. I'm going to try to stay uh, in the big picture and, and looking at the main um, broad things uh, to get the message of the psalm. So some of the dominant imagery of this psalm would be a military imagery. Um, so the whole psalm is depicting what seems what seems like a a battle and a victory in battle and then a a triumphant procession after such a victory. You have imagery like enemies as animals, um, and we've seen that before as wild beasts of various sorts presenting various dangers. Um, we have imagery in creation references, and those are references that come in both geographic terms, referring to hills and depths of the sea and things like that. And then we also have some meteorological references like the abundance of rain and even snow um, and things like that. We also have um, some death and resurrection imagery in this um, psalm. It's, it's not extremely pronounced in this psalm, but it is important to the psalms. That's why um, that I bring it up. You also have a motif in this psalm of contrasts. So um, you have several different types of contrasts, and one of those is movements. There's a lot of movement in this psalm when you look at it. So there's movements from heaven to earth, which shouldn't surprise us. I mean, it's a, if it's a messianic psalm, it's a kingly or a royal psalm, then we should expect that there's going to be some sort of reference to um, God's reign in the heavens, his universal dominion, and his reign come to earth and reigning over the earth. So we have movement from heaven to earth. We have procession from Sinai to Zion. Um, we have movement from um, wilderness and, um, and want and need to abundance. Uh, we have mo movement from prison to victory celebration. So uh, you have a number of those type of movements. Uh, we have contrasts in um, references to scattering and to gathering. And so the, the enemies of God are going to be scattered um, and his people of Israel are going to be gathered. Uh, we have uh, the contrasts of death and life. It is the wicked who are going to perish um, when the king comes. And it is the righteous who are going um, to be delivered from death and to have life and rejoicing. Um, there's a contrast between the oppressed and the thriving. And I, I guess if we wanted to, we could even probably press that and say it's something of a wisdom reversal in this psalm because the the uh, the righteous that are being delivered in this psalm, I mean, they're depicted as the poor, the fatherless, um, the widows. They're, they're the ones that are in the desert and the dry land, and that's going to be flipped over. Um, the wicked are going to be um, put to death. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be, you know, removed essentially from their abundance. Uh, we also have contrasts in this psalm of heights and depths. Um, so a number of those contrasts. Also, 
we have in this psalm uh, a use of plural pronouns, and we've, we've encountered this at different times. So David, in essence, is leading sort of a communal praise. So you can see those pronouns like in verses 19 and 20 and verse 28, and then you also see some communal reference in verses 24 to 27. Um, and also, though, though maybe not typically thought to be a poetic feature, there are, are a lot of obscure words and phrases in this psalm. Um, and it's one of the things that actually makes this psalm very difficult. And um, if you look at commentaries on this psalm, you're going to see that, number one, they're going to be all over the place on interpretation of this psalm. And number two, they're just about all going to say something to the effect of this is the most difficult psalm in all of the Psalms. Um, and I, I'm just tempted to agree with that at this point. Um, I don't know if, if any after this are going to prove more difficult than this Psalm, but it is a very difficult Psalm. So one of the reasons why it's difficult is you, you got, for instance, I think some 15 words in this Psalm that only appear in this Psalm, nowhere else in the Old Testament. Some of them also are words that we, we simply don't know the meaning to. We, it's just been lost. And aside from that, there are also the use of words in this psalm that are very rare in the Old Testament. There's the, there's the use of some phrases and some references that are, are difficult, um, just difficult to decipher. So there, there's a number of challenges presented by this psalm um, so uh, I think we're ready now to go uh, do our walkthrough of this psalm. Um, it is 35 verses, and that is a pretty long reading, uh, but I will go ahead and read through this psalm, and then we'll um, talk about it. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melteth before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yea, let them exceedingly rejoice. Sing unto God. Sing praises to his name. Extol him that rideth upon the heavens by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God setteth the solitary in families. He bringeth out those which are bound with chains. But the rebellious dwell on a dry land. O God, when thou wentest forth before thy people, when thou didst march through the wilderness, Selah, the earth shook. The heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Thou, O God, didst send a plentiful rain, whereby thou didst confirm thine inheritance when it was weary. Thy congregation hath dwelt therein. Thou, O God, hast prepared of thy goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. Kings of armies did flee apace, and she that tarried at home divided the spoil. Though ye have lying among the pots, yet shall ye be as the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow and salmon. The hill of God is as the hill of Bashan, and high hill as the hill of Bashan. Why leap ye, ye high hills? This is the hill which God desireth to dwell in, Yea, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. And the Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men. Yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Blessed be the Lord, who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation, Selah. He that is our God is the God of salvation, and unto God the Lord belong the issues from death. The God shall wound the head of his enemies, and the hairy scalp of such a one as goeth on still in his trespasses. The Lord said, I will bring again from Bashan, I will bring my people again from the depths of the sea, that thy foot may be dipped in the blood of thine enemies, and the tongue of thy dogs in the same. They have seen thy goings, O God, even the goings of my God, my King, in the sanctuary. The singers went before, the players on instruments followed after. Among them were the damsels playing with timbrels. Bless ye God in the congregations, even the Lord from the fountain of Israel. 
There is little Benjamin with their ruler, the princes of Judah and their council, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Thy God hath commanded thy strength. Strengthen, O God, that which thou hast wrought for us. Because of thy temple at Jerusalem shall kings bring presents unto thee. Rebuke the company of spearmen, the multitude of the bulls with the calves of the people, till every one submit himself with pieces of silver. Scatter thou the people that delight in war. Princes shall come out of Egypt. Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hands unto God. Sing unto God, ye kingdoms of the earth. O sing praises unto the Lord. Selah. To him that rideth upon the heaven of heavens, which were of old. Lo, he doth send out his voice, and that a mighty voice. Ascribe ye strength unto God. His excellency is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. O God, thou art terrible out of thy holy places. The God of Israel is he that giveth strength and power unto his people. Blessed be God. So verses 1 to 3 open up this psalm, and they begin this psalm envisioning the scattering of God's enemies. So it speaks of God arising or God rising up. And this is a term that is oftentimes put over against the rising up of the enemies to oppress and to threaten David. So we've seen it used in Psalm 54.3 and in Psalm 59.1. Essentially, enemies have risen up against me. Rise up, O God, and destroy them is is essentially the prayer. And it's also a contrast emphasized um, in the Psalms of Korah. So Psalm 44, verses 5 and 26. Now, this line that opens this psalm about God arising and the enemies being scattered echoes the saying of Moses in Numbers chapter 10 and verse 35. And that announced, again, the going forth of the ark and the people to leave Sinai behind and to proceed to the promised land. Now, the fleeing of the enemies um, that is mentioned is described through a couple of similes. And so that the similes are smoke that is driven away by the wind and wax that melts before a flame. So the point is, is that the smoke and the wax cannot resist and stand against the wind and the fire, just like the wicked cannot stand against Christ at his coming. And it it obviously reminds us of uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, numerous references actually here that remind us of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 1 speaks about uh, how that the wicked cannot stand and how that they're going to be driven away like the chaff. You know, the chaz, the wind drives away the chaff. So here they're like the smoke that's just dissipated by the wind. It, it can't it can't hold, it can't stand. But by contrast, in verse 3, his presence, which, which scatters the enemy like um, smoke by the wind or wax before the fire, his presence is the rejoicing and the gladdening of the righteous. So it's his presence in both regards, but it scatters the enemy and it rejoices the righteous. Verses 4 to 6 give us a call to praise. So there's a direction to sing praise to God, to sing praise to his name, uh, like in Psalm 66, verses 2 and 4. Um, singing praise to his name obviously includes God's power, um, God's majesty of person. Now, the word for heavens here, um, saying that he um, rides, um, oh, where is, oh, yes, there it is. Extol him that rideth upon the heavens. The word for heavens is nowhere else translated as heavens. This is the only place in the Old Testament where the word appears that it's translated heavens. Um, Elsewhere, it is primarily translated as wilderness or plain. Um, We could even say desert. And so it's it's an image, it's, it's a victorious image of power and exaltation over the false gods of the nations, that God rideth victoriously through um, through the wilderness. In other words, it's envisioning his coming to um, to Jerusalem and to his holy city. The fatherless and the widows are mentioned um, in the next verse, there, verse number five. And the fatherless and the widows, they symbolize the abandoned and the forsaken. Um, and now we have noted in the Korahite Psalms, as well as in the David Psalms, particularly in the early part, there's, there's an abandonment theme that runs through those Psalms and connects them together. That's also resolved by 
the coming of the king. Well, here in Psalm 68, um, that's also resolved and probably in a, um, a more prominent way than, than spoken of in, in the earlier Psalms. But here it, it, here it is countered. So he's a father to the fatherless. He, he's a judge to the widows, and, and the poor will be mentioned later on. So, so they symbolize the abandoned and the forsaken. And um, early Psalms like Psalm 22 uh, verse 1 and verses 9 to 11, which very strong, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Obviously strong on that abandonment theme in a Messianic Psalm, Psalm 27, uh, verses 9 and 10, which are the same way. The reference to God's holy habitation, that's his dwelling place, especially Zion, uh, the place where he has set his name, the place where he installs um, his king. And God puts the lonely, he says, the solitary, he puts the lonely in families and he frees the prisoners or the captives. Now, the rebellious that are mentioned, these are, these are they that in Psalm 66 and verse 7 are those that exalt themselves. And the very word that is used here means to turn away. So they, they turn away from God. They turn away from his word. They exalt themselves. And it's said here that they will permanently dwell in the parched and the scorched land. In other words, um, it's, it's a poetic way of saying that they're going to be cut off from the land of the living. So it's a, a disinheritance theme, which is something we've um, noted before. Verses 7 to 10 then speak about the exodus. All right, so now um, we've gone from sort of the, the uh, future envisioned and the, the uh, catalog of, of praiseworthiness of God, and now we're looking at history. And again, there's a blending of this past and, and future. So the Exodus is referred to God led his people out of Egypt and through the wilderness um, that is mentioned, and they came to Sinai. And they came to Sinai where they received the law. They received the old covenant. And it's interesting that here in verse 8 and in verse 17 in this psalm are the only mentions of Sinai in all of the psalms. It's the only places that these are mentioned in connection with this exodus. And specifically, he refers to the shaking of Sinai, which we can read about in Exodus chapter number 19 that shaking of Sinai at the presence of God. But it says that God sent a plentiful rain. In other words, he established or he caused his inheritance to stand. Um, the inheritance that's, that's referred to, this, uh, this is the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Uh, we, we see the term used in places like Psalm 47 and, and verse 4. And ultimately, this is the restoration of the land from the pollution of sin. So, as you read in the law in Deuteronomy and, and also in the book of Leviticus, you have these blessings and cursings of the covenant. So if they don't keep God's covenant, then all these cursings are going to come. And a part of those cursings that you read about are the desolation of the land. And the later prophets that speak about the judgment that's going to come um, through the exile and the extended exile, um, those judgments are spoken of in terms of a desolation. There being a desolation to the land. Um, the blessings of the covenant were for a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of, a land of abundance and, um, and, and a land of plenty. So here he speaks about God sending the rain. In other words, God restoring that inheritance to truly being that land that flows with milk and honey. And so again, as you read the prophets and you read the, the imagery of that time of restoration, then you read about um, the, you know, the hills uh, dripping with wine and, and the, the fruits and all of, all of these things, this land being restored. So desolation because of the pollution of sin, the coming of, of the king, is a restoration or regeneration, as it were, of the land. Now, this mention of congregation here in verse 10 is not the normal word for congregation, and it's a word that actually refers primarily to the living. Um, and, it, and it's very often used to speak of, of, of animals of some sort. And so it's probably a pastoral reference to Israel as a flock, thy, thy flock. Have, uh, has dwelt in this land. And here he mentions the poor and the goodness that he's prepared for the poor. So the poor belong categorically 
with the fatherless and the widows. Again, they are um, the oppressed and depressed of um, society. They represent the forsaken and the abandoned. They are those that have um, no help and so on. When we come to verses uh, 11 to 14, then we're proceeding in this historical um, summary. So we go from the Exodus to Sinai. And now in verses 11 to 14, we're seeing the conquest of Canaan um, being referred to. Um, the word of promise that is mentioned that the Lord gave, that, that word means, uh, means promise. And it was fulfilled, um, and that promise fulfilled was praised by the company of women. So the company of those that published it, as I understand the expression, is actually in the feminine. Um, so it is referring to uh, a, a great company of women, which actually goes along with the following verses in, in the context. So what the reference is to is to a celebration of victory, like what you saw in Exodus chapter 15. There you had Miriam leading the women in um, praises. Um, we have uh, Judges chapter 5, and you have the song of Deborah. First um, Samuel chapter 18 and verse number 6, you have the women praising um, the uh, David and, and those returning from the battle. All right, so this is a, a this is a celebration of victory that is being referred to. This uh, this being, in, in other words, they're singing, praising God, singing what God had done. Now the song of the women and the mention of the women at home, which comes in, in the next verse, in verse number twelve, are expressing the comprehensive nature of the victory and the extents of the blessings from it. So in other words, um, to, to capture the imagery, think about maybe perhaps uh, that men have gone off to war in some far and distant land and they have conquered and been victorious and so have returned home with all of the spoils and all of the rewards. And so you have the, the women that are praising um, their reception at coming home, and also they're dividing the spoils. So in other words, it, it's showing us the completeness of this victory. They, they've returned home with full reward, and everyone um, is enjoying and being blessed by it. So from the field of battle to home, which would be another, uh, another movement um, in this psalm. Now, the victory song seems to begin here, in um, verse number 12, and it's not very clear where it ends. Um, it, it could go possibly all the way to verse number 18. It, it's a little difficult to tell, um, but we see the beginning of, of the, you know, the, the kings and their armies fleeing. Um, the, the victors have come home, the, so the women are, are singing of this great victory and, and dividing the spoil, so it's, again, it's a comprehensive victory. And the next verse about lying among the pots um, could be a reference to Deborah's song in Judges chapter number five. So in Deborah's song, there is a place in where she is chiding the cowards of Israel that didn't go to battle. Um, and that seems to go along with what is being spoken of here. Though their hearts failed with fear, their deliverance was granted them and their victory still shared. So in other words, um, this this victory has has brought... Uh, has brought grace um, to them, you could say. The scattered kings of Canaan um, would be referred to in verse number 14, and the imagery is as the white as snow in Salmon. Now, the word that's used here, it means black or a dark mountain. Um, so obviously snow is providing a contrast there with, with light and dark. The exact imagery is, is a little bit uncertain, um, exactly what is meant and exactly where Salmon was. I mean, I think um, historically there have been some places um, identified by that name, um, but not places that um, really got snow. So uh, it, it's it's a little it's a little well, I say a little. It's actually quite a bit obscure, um, and it could be that he's scattering kings like snow is scattered. Um, that could be the reference. In other words, um, this is a little grisly, but but some of the imagery in it is grisly. Um, it's sort of like the the bodies, you know, the corpses of the, of the kings are just scattered across the ground, like like snow um, scattered that covers the ground so that you can't see the ground beneath it. 
When we look at verses 15 to 27 then, which again probably is continuing this song, not exactly sure how far that it extends, but in this part of the psalm, we see now the greater victory to come. So we're, we're, we've looked sort of at the history, and it's sort of been woven together with this vision of the future. And essentially, the, the effect is that you see what God has done, and we know what God has promised to do, and so this ensures us what God will do. So it's, it's an assurance of the future. And, and what we're seeing, it's also something of another contrast that comes in this psalm. So the deliverances of the Exodus, the presence of God that shook Sinai, and the conquering of Canaan were all past events, but they're past events that are going to, to fail in comparison to this coming event that is being looked at, and that is the coming of the Messiah to the earth when he crushes the heads of his enemies, and we'll, we'll get to that. So there's, a, in other words, there's a greater victory to come than even what was seen and experienced there in the Exodus and the conquest and the presence of God at Sinai. So the hill of God, which is, is referenced here, is a reference to Zion. Um, that is the hill of God. Um, and the hill of Bashan is most likely a reference to Mount Hermon. Uh, Mount Hermon was the tallest peak in that region of Bashan. Uh, there wasn't, there, as far as I know, there wasn't a Mount Bashan um, in that region, but there was a Mount Hermon, and it was the tallest peak. And so the statement here is that Zion, which is the hill of God, has been exalted above Bashan. And so Mount Hermon was, was actually a, a place uh, that was considered a holy and a sacred place um, by the Canaanites. And it was where they, they believed that um, their gods dwelled. It was the place where their gods reigned from. So it, it was seen as, as the symbol of their power and their security. But the hill of Zion has been exalted above that hill of Bashan, in other words, indicating um, Christ's victory over all principalities and powers, whether they are things seen or unseen. So um, Zion is exalted above the highest hill, uh, which reminds us of the actually the imagery in Daniel when um, the stone is cut out without hands and it comes down and it grows up into a mountain that covers you know the entire earth. It's the highest of all mountains. So this is a reference to the victory and the power of Zion's kingdom. Now the hills and the kingdoms are obvious, are envious against their uh, the high hills that are leaping and such in the next verse. They're envious of the hill of God, the hill of Zion, and once he comes to his hill, he will dwell there forever. In other words, once he has come to his holy hill, he will dwell there forever. Again, this is um, echoing um, Psalm two. The heavenly host are mentioned here. These chariots and the thousands of angels. The heavenly hosts would be that of God's armies. Um, and the ascending in verse 18, the ascending of the high mountain of the enemy um, and the leading forth of the enemies as prisoners uh, represent a complete conquest and a complete victory in warfare. And so we see here that the victor receives tribute and he receives the spoils of war. And in turn, those spoils are given to his people. So in, in a way, we, we could say that this psalm is, is showing to us our great hero king. He is the one who fights our battles. He is the one who wins our calls. And he is the one who brings all the spoils um, and shares them with us, gives us part in it. Um, now, this is the verse that Paul referenced in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 8. Um, which causes uh, no no deal of, of consternation in a lot of ways. But it's really not that problematic if we understand that Paul is not attempting an exact word-for-word quote of an isolated verse from the Psalms. But rather, he's making an allusion to this verse and actually to this whole Psalm through this verse. So that means that what he is, is referring to is actually a composite or a summary um, that is emphasizing the Lord's victory and the receiving of tribute and the dispensing of gifts. And all of those things are in this psalm, along with the, the ascending and the descending and the heights and the depths. All of those things are in this psalm. So Paul, in other words, is alluding to this entire psalm and is giving um, just a, a composite summary in Ephesians chapter 4. 
Then we see the praise of the Lord for his salvation there in verse number 19. Uh, We're told that he delivers in verse 20, even from death. So here we have this subtle imagery, resurrection imagery. His people are rescued from death. And of course, the wicked are the ones that experience death. They shall perish, as it says back up in, uh, I think it was verse one or verse number two. Now, the word for wound, the wounding of the head of the enemies is a word that actually means to crush. He will crush the head of his enemies beneath his feet. Uh, We've seen that reference in Psalm number 18 and verse number 38. Now, Bashan that is mentioned again here, Bashan represents the height and the depths of the sea obviously represents the depths. So again, it's, it's, it's like saying from A to Z from the highest to the lowest. It's, it's um, in other words, it's, it's a comprehensive statement. He's going to gather his scattered people from the heights to the depths. Con- again, comprehensively. The righteous will be delivered and they will conquer with him. And that's what verse 23 speaks about, that these righteous, these ones that he has gathered, they're going to dip their feet in the blood of their enemies and the tongues of their dogs are going to lick it up. Again, pretty grisly, um, but nevertheless, um, that is what is said. Now, we saw very similar imagery in Psalm 58 and verse number 10, just a little earlier in this David group. Dogs, um, obviously, licking up the blood is, is a... Um, it's a signal of the humiliation of the defeat of the enemies of God. It's an utter defeat and humiliation to them. Then we have reference to the king in the sanctuary, which again would be a reference to Zion. Uh, we have the profession of pr- the procession of praise by the by the singers and all the various instruments. We have a call to praise again in verse twenty six. Now the word for congregation here is different from the one that was used earlier. This is the normal word for congregation. It really refers to us to the assembly. It's the assembly of Israel. The gathered Israel is is assembled here. That's the congregation that's being spoken of. So it is the gathering of the restoration of Israel. Now, this reference to the fountain of Israel is obscure. Um, most likely is a reference to Abraham or maybe even to Jacob as being the source of the people of Israel, because that's what the word means. And the mentioning of the tribes, which comes after this further clarifies that this is about Israel and their restoration. Benjamin and Judah are mentioned. There's four tribes that are mentioned here. Benjamin and Judah were the tribes that were in the most southern part of Israel. Uh, Zebulun and and, and Naphtali were in the northern part of Israel. So again, it's it's the same sort of an expression, like saying from north to south, east to west. It's it's comprehensive. So it means all of the tribes, all all of that land. Um, We get to verses 28 to 31, and we see the kings of the earth in that day. So there's a a direction to praise God, and then we see the tribute, the presence that will be brought to the temple at Jerusalem by the kings of the earth in that day. So the enemy nations that are referred to here as animals are being brought under subjection to God's king. And then we have mentions of Egypt and Ethiopia, which at the time of the writing were powerful nations. They represented powerful nations. They represented a threat, um, and they were enemies to Israel, and they are pictured here as being subjected to the king. Verses 32 to 35 then conclude the psalm with a concluding praise. So there's a direction to all the earth in that day, all the kingdoms of the earth, to sing praise to God. And this is reflected in Psalm 65, verses 1, 5, 7, and 9, Psalm 66, verse 17, Psalm 67, verses 3 and 4. Of course, that's all in this group, and we have, we've encountered it a number of times before now. God is described here in his power and his might. He is the God of Israel who will rule upon the earth over all the kingdoms of the earth. And finally, God is praised as the only hope of his people. All right, so that was a quick walkthrough. Um, let's go to the interpretation. The interpretation is a lot more tricky. It takes about twice as long. No, actually, it won't be that long. Again, I'm just, I'm trying to focus on the big picture, main, main things, main trajectory of this psalm as we go through. So, well, what is Psalm 68 teaching? Um, psalm 68 is teaching movement from the old covenant to the new. It's, it's, a, it's beautiful um, as it is in here. 
Now, Zion is not specifically named, but it is referred to. God's holy habitation, God's hill, God's sanctuary, all these places that we have all these references. They're references to Zion. So Zion, though it's not named, is here, and it is named in the next psalm. The only mention of Sinai in all of the psalms is in this psalm, along with the mentions of Jerusalem, uh, which Jerusalem is named in this um, psalm, and the references to Zion. Now, the writer of Hebrews also referred to the shaking of Sinai and contrasted it with Zion that cannot be shaken in Hebrews chapter number 12. So the contrast that the writer of Hebrews is, is picking up on is that Sinai is the old covenant and Zion is the new covenant. So the old covenant is that that is shaken. And what can be shaken, he says, is that that is to be done away. But what cannot be shaken is what is to remain, and that is Zion. So Sinai is the old, Zion is the new and better covenant that will not be done away. So here we see, we've seen the exodus, we've seen the conquest, we've seen all these parts of Israel's history. And then as we envision the future in Psalm 68, when Israel is gathered and restored, it's not to Sinai, but it is to Zion. And that is that is their hope, their deliverance from death, um, their exceeding rejoicing. Psalm 68 also teaches the salvation of God for the poor, the fatherless, and the widows. Not because they are poor, fatherless, and widows, but because they are a class of the oppressed and needy. So in other words, they are representative figures. And ultimately what they represent, which is, which is true in the law, it's true in the prophets, and it's also true here in the writings, what they represent are all who are saved from death through the deliverance of God. We've noted before how that there have been references where David him, expresses himself to be poor and needy, and that, that is even applied to the Messiah. So these are those who have truly taken refuge in God. They are all poor, fatherless, widows, and needy. Now, the Messianic hope of Psalm 68 is seen through the coming of God to earth and installing his anointed son king on his holy hill of Zion, just as was prophesied in Psalm 2. Now, this psalm envisions the millennial reign of the Davidic Messiah king. He comes to the earth as a mighty warrior leading a great army and crushes his enemies beneath his feet. We can see this reflected in places like Revelation chapter 14 and verse 20 uh, and chapter 19 verses 11 to 21, but also in um, the prophets of the Old Testament as well. He gathers and restores his people, Israel, to their inheritance. He establishes his reign from Zion, and the kings of the earth bring their tribute to Zion. We could actually uh, point out a number of other uh, parallels, um, messianic parallels, uh, fulfillments that we have in Christ. So j just like he becomes a father to the fatherless and, and um, a judge of the, of the widows, he puts a solitary in families. And, and think about um, things like the sayings of Jesus when he said, you know, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who is my sister? Those that do the will of God. In other words, he, we have been uh, made a part of that family. We've been put into that family. So there's there's other things that we could point to, but um, particularly this kings of the earth bringing their tribute into Israel. Uh, verse number 29 here uh, reflected in um, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, uh, chapter 18 and verse 7, chapter 45 and verse 14, chapter 60, verses 3 to 7. Later also in Zechariah, uh, Zechariah chapter 8, verses 21 to 22, chapter 14, verses 16 to 19. And, and other places in the prophets as well. All right, so application. I have two of these. Number one, understanding Psalm 68 helps us today understand how to read the Old Testament history. We see God's presence, and that is the point of the rehearsing of this history, God's presence and what it meant and what it will 
mean. So we understand how to read this Old Testament history. Um, we also see his future presence in this. We, so we understand. In other words, God brought the people of Israel through the Red Sea on dry land. He, he brought them to the land of promise. God keeps his promises, and he will fulfill all that is looked forward to in this psalm. Number two, understanding Psalm 68 helps us understand where we are, helps us understand where we are going. So those who trust in Jesus, those who take refuge in him, are presently poor and fatherless and widowed in a dry land. And I don't, I don't care um, you know, what kind of house you live in. I don't care what your bank account says. You are poor and fatherless and widowed in a dry land. Um, pilgrims and strangers, as it's spoken of in Hebrews chapter number 11. But however, we poor fatherless widows will be taken up. We will be brought into a land flowing with milk and honey. I think Paul in Romans chapter 8 talked about it, it, it's not even worthy to be compared. We can't even compare this present life with that that is to come. We, we, don't, we can't even um, you know, combine those things or, or, or make any sense between them. So we will be brought into a land flowing with milk and honey, honey as the enemies are destroyed and the earth is restored with the coming of the king. <laughs> 